0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. As you know, we put in a ton of time and effort to make each of our shows as valuable as we can. If you find the information useful, please share this podcast with a friend by emailing it to them or sharing this on the social media site of your choice.
1: Are you 100% confident that you will achieve financial freedom? Well, if not, You'll certainly want to listen to today's guest, author of Achieve Financial Freedom Big Time, Sandy Botkin. Sandy is a tax attorney, certified public accountant, and chief executive officer and principal lecturer of Tax Reduction Institute based in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Sandy. It is a pleasure to be on. Hey, it's great to have you. I don't think our listeners can hear enough the importance of sound financial planning. And you just released the book, Achieve Financial Freedom Big Time. Share with our listeners how that's different than all the financial books that are published today.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that I've always said to myself is there are literally hundreds of financial planning books out there. But I got some statistics, being a CPA and tax attorney, that I read all kinds of stuff, and I was reading some of the statistics that the CPA Society sent us, and they were just alarming. For example, the average American family has 3800 in the bank. 50% of households don't even have a retirement account, and the retirement that they do have is woefully inaccurate. Your average net worth of people age 55 and over, this is something that's startling, if you take out people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, is $55,000. of households have no savings whatsoever, and 24% have postponed retirement, and it gets worse. And I'm saying to myself, with all these hundreds of financial books, how is this happening? And so I actually started reading a number of financial books, and I was absolutely taken aback by what I saw. Most of them, I'd say 98% of them, were horrible. They were written as commercials to sell a certain product. For example, one guy, no matter what your problem was, was to buy whole life insurance for anything. Many of these books were commercials for their offices or services. Some were giant commercials for other books. In fact, some of the most famous authors were like this. So I decided I wanted to write an independent book. I'm not a financial advisor. I don't take clients. That really gives inside information that people can use to bridge the gap between themselves and their financial planner or their accountant. That's really the main reason I wrote this, and I wanted something very practical and nitty-gritty. The problem is, I'm a tax lawyer. I'm not a financial advisor, but I do lecture all over the country. So I met some really successful multimillionaires, and I decided, well, why don't I interview them? In fact, my wife came up with this idea, I guess, behind every good guy there's a better woman, but she came up with the idea of interviewing some of the really top people that I meet on all kinds of topics, I met someone who's an educational consultant on, should you spend that money on that dream school? How much debt is too much debt? I met a guy who owned a bank on how to save money and how to get out of debt. I put a personal situation on evaluating nursing homes and independent living facilities for a relative. Yet there's very little on that. And I met a guy who specialized on that and a lot of other financial topics, nitty-gritty stuff that affects us all. And that's how I wrote Chief Financial Freedom big time. And my other book, Lower Your Taxes, that I did have personal knowledge of, and that's why I wrote
2: that. Let's jump right in on Chapter 1, because you cite 16 reasons that people fail financially, but you really especially note the six horsemen of financial death that can wipe people out or their property out quickly. Just touch on those six factors, if you would.
0: It's interesting. There are a lot of reasons why people fail, but there are a couple things that just absolutely can just completely wipe you out in a matter of days, literally, one of which is disability. It is shocking to me that people don't realize how prevalent that is. Approximately three out of ten people, three out of ten, are going to face some time of disability before retirement. One in seven people are disabled for five years or more. Everyone should have some kind of long-term disability insurance, and not having that is, to me, absolutely ridiculous. second thing is premature death. Obviously, the mortality rate for us as human beings is 100%. Having people die when their family is not prepared without insurance is incredible. And it's never enough insurance, unfortunately, or very rarely enough insurance, unless they have a really good financial advisor. And that's very, very important. In fact, I just met someone, age 41, the guy just passed away. Third major problem is lawsuits, asset protection. Normally, people have about a 1 in 200 chance of being sued unless you're in business. Then it's probably closer to 1 in 5. I mean, it's huge. There's a new lawsuit filed every four seconds. Yet, what are people doing about asset protection? Almost nothing. It is absolutely astonishing. The fourth major thing, which has gotten lessened as a result of the new taxpayer relief law, is the estate taxes and probate. State taxes now were raised to about 40%. Now, there is a big exemption. It's like 5.25 million exemption for each person. So that eliminates a lot of people from estate tax, but it still can happen. But more importantly, even the estate tax now, is probate. Probate can take a lot of money out of your pocket. If people are not well prepared for that, even worse, people make very unwise choices. When it comes to planning for their personal estate, a good example, I have a limo driver. Very simple example. She had several sisters, and one sister took care of grandma. And the grandmother, in order to pay her bills, decided to put her money in joint names with one of the sisters just to help pay the bills. Well, the grandmother died, and unfortunately, when we have a joint account, all the money passes to the joint owner, which is that one granddaughter. But the grandmother's will wanted all her money to pass to her own daughter. Didn't happen because it was in joint name that one granddaughter had the money. She wouldn't give it up and that completely alienated the entire family. Fifth killer of wealth is unwise use of credit, and that is just a huge problem. Credit in this country is just, for example, student loan debt is probably the number one debt right now. It's even exceeding credit card debt. And yet people are borrowing like crazy to go to these expensive private schools, which is absolutely insane. And even worse, most of the student loan interest isn't deductible, and people need to know how much debt they can have that would be deductible and how much debt they should incur, but they don't know. And the final killer is income taxes. Income tax, I wrote a whole book on this called Lower Your Taxes Big Time. Which is just a huge, huge killer. In fact, taxes are the number one expense in North America. It exceeds what you pay for food, clothing, lodging, and transportation combined, and yet very, very few people sit down with their financial advisor or accountant and say, okay, what do I need to do to reduce my income tax? I'll pay for any planning. Let's do that. I'd like to see that. That doesn't happen too often.
2: Oh, well, that is a super summary. I mean, those are obviously six key points. As you are going through it, we're both just going, yeah, go Sandy. Those are phenomenal points because you crossed over estate planning, asset protection. You've talked about insurance planning and tax planning, and that's all what our advisors do for their clients and I love the message of don't going it alone it's just too complex today one of the things you mention in your book Sandy is the importance of having reserves what do you really think from your perspective how much does a person need and where should it go
0: that's another interesting question. I get questions all the time, and I'm sure you do. In fact, I just got a question on my Facebook site. I have a tax bot Facebook site. The question was, I just have a rainy day fund of about $5,000. Where should I invest my money? And people are making you listen to things on TV. You listen about mutual funds, and you listen about all this other stuff, and they leave out the most important point. It's probably the single most important point in all of financial planning, I think. And that is, it is absolutely critical that people have a reserve. Now what's a reserve? A reserve by definition is a very safe place that you invest enough money to cover you for unemployment and large anticipated and unanticipated expenses. That's a very critical point. Most people don't. They really don't have this reserve. If the average person has 3800 in the bank, that's not enough of a reserve. So the question is, first of all, how much did you have? And the next important question is, where should you invest it? And you, believe it or not, you can read all these financial books, and you know what? You're not going to find the answer to this. You're not. And here's the answer. First of all, to figure out how much you need in reserve, you have to take, number one, one year. There's a formula that I actually give you. You want to take 12 months of living expenses. Now, let's face it. It depends on your job here. If you're married and you both have federal jobs, your chances of losing that are slim, you don't probably need a year of living expenses. Maybe six months or five months might be fine. But if you're in a private industry where you can be laid off or you're in a job that's really insecure, you certainly want at least one year of living expenses. The second thing you want is at least five dollars to $10,000 for unanticipated big expenses. What are those things? I'll give you an example. I own some rental property. I had some property that I absolutely needed massive renovation, about $8,000. If I didn't have a reserve for that built in, I'd have to come out with $8,000 or borrow on a credit card, which is even worse. So you need at least five to 10,000 for unanticipated big expenses medical expenses, dental, like implants, things like that. Then you need a reserve for large anticipated expenses that you expect to incur within three years. And you might say, well, what are those? Weddings, college. A lot of people place these investments in very speculative areas for kids that are going on to college in two years. Then when the stock market drops, they lost their whole college fund. You want a nice, safe reserve for college that you expect to incur within three years of tuition. And if you're going to start up a business, you want at least two years of business and personal overhead expense because you never know how you're going to need this. So the formula, between five and twelve months depending on the type of job you have, of living expenses, five to ten thousand of unanticipated big expenses, any large expense you anticipate to incur within three years, and two years of business and personal overhead if you're going to start a business. Now the important key point here is where does the reserve get invested? And here's your answer. Safe, safe, safe. The return on your money is irrelevant. You want it safe. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could be your mattress. I'm only kidding. But safe. Savings account, money market account, checking account. Putting it in the stock market is absolutely not the right place for a reserve because the stock market could drop. And that's exactly what happened to many people's college funds when the stock market dropped and then they were really up a creek. Putting it in bonds also is a problem because if interest rates go up, which could very easily, the bonds go down unless it's a very short term type of bonds You want it safe and you want it liquid. Even CDs. CDs sound safe, but you can't take it out without a big penalty. So you want it safe and you want it liquid. That's where you want your reserve money. And everything that you worry about, investments, comes after you have that reserve.
1: Good point. I think a lot of people are living on the edge, and that's good advice for a lot of people. The next thing we want to talk about, Sandy, you've mentioned that compound interest, and I got to agree with you on this one, is the eighth wonder of the world. And I think Einstein also had some comments about it. It's the miracle of compound interest is, I think, the way he put it. What do you have to say about compounding and what should people know about that?
0: it's interesting. I met with a guy who actually owned a bank. As I said, I met with very successful people. And he said, if there's one concept that everyone needs to know about, it's compound interest. And people think they know, but they really don't. (laughs) It's astonishing how much they don't know. For example, with compound interest, one of the important points is that time correlates directly with compounding. Slight increases in the amount of years or the amount of interest that you get dramatically affect your return. For example, story. If you were to invest 7,000 a year for 30 years in an average performing mutual fund, I'm not talking anything speculative, just an average performing mutual fund, even under today's rates, and I'm being conservative, I'm using a conservative fund, would generate about a million dollars at the end of 30 years. Same 7,000 a year and do it for 40 years, which is only 10 years more, that $1 million becomes $3 If You triple your results by just adding an extra 10 years. By raising your interest rate by 1%, you can increase your rate of return by the end of 40 years as much as 40%. I mean, it's just enormous. So the point is slight increases in interest, slight increases in years dramatically affects your return. Here's a good application of compounding. Let's assume you're going to put money into a pension plan. I get asked in all these radio shows and TV shows, the year's over, what can I do now? And all these commentators say, well, they want you to tell me to invest in your IRA or your 401k at the end of the year so you can get a deduction for the prior year. The best thing you can do, let me give you an interesting story. If you maximize your 401k towards the beginning of the year, in fact, you don't need to be a 401k, an IRA, take an IRA, $5,000 at the beginning of the year for 40 years. You put that $5,000 away every year for 40 years, but you do it in January. Same $5,000 a year, but now you do it in December of that year instead of January. By doing it in January, at the beginning of the year, you will have an extra $60,000 to $80,000 at retirement, just by doing it at the beginning of each year and not at the end of each year. Same number of years, same $5,000, but by simply changing when you make that contribution to the beginning of the year, you have an extra sixty dollars to $80,000, depending on your rate of return. I mean, that is just shocking. And there's all kinds of formulas that people can use to determine how long they need to invest things. For example, there's called the formula of 72, where you take the number 72 and divide by the interest rate, and this will tell you the number of years it will take you to double your money. Some of you may know that, but that's there's one formula you don't know. If you want to figure out how to triple your money, take 115 divided by the interest rate, and that'll tell you how long it'll take you to triple your money. So really, understanding compounding is a very critical tool in figuring out how much you need to save, what you need to do to put away for your kid's education, for your kid's retirement. It's very important, and there's a lot of tools. There's a lot of financial calculators that you can get on the web. We have one, taxbot.com. I have it on the taxreductioninstitute.com. There's financial web. There's all kinds of stuff where you can go to tools, financial calculators, present and future value, and they will ask you to put in various things. and They'll tell you how much you need to invest in order to have X dollars at retirement or to have X dollars in so many years for your kid's education. Well worth doing, well worth trying.
2: Yeah, and this power of compounding when you have time on your side. With the youth in America today probably not being the best savers, and the tools that they have using the Roth IRA, it's just amazing what can happen. We've got so much more to cover. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, let's dive more into the book. So please stay tuned. And now a personal story from the 2010 Life Foundation spokesperson for Life Insurance Awareness Month, actress Leslie Bibb, whose recent credits include roles in Iron Man 2... Confessions of a Shopaholic, and Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Leslie was just three years old when her dad died. At that time, Leslie had no idea what life insurance was and how it benefited her mother. Today, Leslie realizes the enormous impact it had on her life. Let's hear her story.
3: Hi, I'm Leslie Bibb. Photos are my memories. My parents together, dancing to their favorite song and celebrating with friends. Young and in love, they never suspected that their lives together would be cut short. Everything changed when my mother received the awful call that there had been an accident and my father hadn't survived. All of a sudden, the task of raising four girls and keeping our family together fell on her shoulders. But my mom's burden was lessened by my dad's thoughtfulness. His life insurance policy enabled our family to pick up and carry on. The love we show while we are alive is why we live. The love we show after we are gone allows life to continue on. My dad loved us enough to expect the unexpected. Life insurance was his legacy of love to us. No one should be left grieving and in need. Take care of your loved ones by thinking ahead to the unthinkable.
1: Learn more at lifehappens.org, a public service message from the Nonprofit
2: Life Foundation. Welcome back as we continue our conversation today with Sandy Botkin, who's an attorney and CPA. He is the CEO and principal lecturer of the Tax Reduction Institute based in Washington, D.C. And we've been talking about his new book, Achieve Financial Freedom, big time. I love it. And we were just discussing that power of compounding and investing over time. And you had mentioned many times about saving for retirement. You actually mentioned on page 35 a number of sobering statistics showing how little Americans are saving for retirement and other important expenses. How much do you feel from your perspective should Americans be saving each year and what are some of the strategies that people should use to save money?
0: there's a lot of things. I've got several chapters on this, so I'm going to give you sort of a 30,000-foot overview. As I said, it's shocking how little people are saving for retirement. To say that 25% of households have no savings whatsoever, 34% have postponed retirement, is just shocking. Average net worth of people, if you take out the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts of the world for people age 55 and older is $55,000. I mean, that is just shocking, and it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I put away in my IRA, I maximize my IRA every single year. When the simple IRA came out, I maximized that. When I was a paper boy, I put money when I was a young kid into an IRA. and I did this every year. I maximize for 40 years and I'm a multimillionaire now. Was I so smart? Not really. All I do is maximize my savings. Now, in terms of how much you should put away, my suggestion is a minimum of 10% of what you make. Minimum. And so that leaves you need to live on 90% of what you make. That's the critical point. You want to put away 10% for you and live on 90%. Now, you made a very important point at the end of our last session before the break, and I wanted to address that. And one question I get a lot of is, which do I like better, the 401ks or the IRAs, which you get a deduction for, or the Roth 401k, which is like a regular 401k, or the Roth IRA? But the problem is those you don't get a deduction for. Which do I recommend? Well, for years, I was saying, you know, you want to get that deduction. But I gotta tell you something, with a $16 trillion deficit and rising, and Congress being unable to deal with the deficit, I think you're gonna see tax rates dramatically go up. You're already seeing it go up for this year as a result of the new American Taxpayer Relief Law and Obamacare. You've seen it now. Tax rates have been as high as 70% if you go back to the 70s. In my opinion, people should now not be putting money into the deductible IRAs and 401ks, but if you have a rough 401k set up for yourself, do a Roth 401k or a Roth IRA. Why? It's not deductible. The answer is two reasons. One, when the money comes out, it is tax-free for the rest of your life, tax-free. And that's a huge deal. The second reason is that money can be converted into a Roth IRA, and all Roth IRAs do not have a distribution requirement, which means you do not have to take it out at age 70 and a half. You can take it out when you want it, where you want it, or leave it for your family as a tremendous inheritance. So I am recommending very strongly that you invest in either Roth 401ks if your employer has one or a Roth IRA rather than a deductible plan. Now there's one exception, and that is if your employer has a plan that they contribute to, where they will actually make a contribution, you definitely want to maximize that plan. I mean, it's free money. Why would you turn that down? Other than that, I believe in the Roth 401k and the Roth IRA.
1: Now that's probably good general advice. But absolutely, you want to sit down with your financial professional and make sure that it's right for you. Because if you haven't done any savings and you're at 55 and you maybe got five more years to work, the deductible might be better because it might end up coming out tax-free. So it really is a case-by-case situation. But I agree with you, Sandy. If people start and are serious about saving for retirement, I think the Roth IRAs and 401ks is one of the greatest gifts Congress has given us, especially in view of the fact of the trillions and trillions of dollars that the U.S. keeps putting us further and further in debt. And that brings us to What is, for the personal consumer, you have some sobering statistics on the debt that Americans have on page 60 of your book, and what is too much debt, and what kind of steps can people do to kind of get out of that debt trap?
0: You're absolutely right. Some of these statistics, I want to just share some of these with people, because this is why I wrote my book. I saw these statistics, and I was in disbelief. The average credit card debt for people aged 20 to 29, one of those Generation Xers, is $1,800. The total debt for people 20-something is averaging now $45,000. Only 13 states have students required to take finance classes, but I guarantee every state requires phys ed. 60% of people ages 18 to 34 don't even keep a budget. And even worse, student loan debt is rising almost geometrically. The average student loan debt for for 2010 is when I looked at this was $25,000, and that is rising. And yet we have an unemployment rate of almost 12%, although it is dropping. So, I mean, the debt situation is just enormous. I just can't emphasize that enough. So those are the statistics. Your question was exactly?
1: Well, we talked about the problem with the debt trap that most Americans find themselves in. What's too much debt, and what steps can they do to reduce that?
0: I'm going to address that in two ways. One is your normal debt and how much student loan debt should you have. The first thing, as a general rule, is that you should generally try to have your total debt, and that includes mortgages, consumer debt, loans, everything, to be, I would say, under 18%, if you can do it, under 18%. From 20% to about 25% is bad. You need to do something about that. And over 27% is too much, no matter what. That's a general rule. Now, in terms of student loan debt, that's a specific thing. The government allows you to get a deduction for interest, assuming you make under a certain income. And that's in my book, Lower Your Taxes Big Time, which is another book as well. The problem is, general student loan debt is very expensive. It's about 8% is what they charge. There's a maximum of $2,500 that you can deduct on student loan debt, which means that generally, if your student loan debt is over $33,000, you get no deduction for the interest. And that's very expensive. So i like to recommend that for student loan debt, should not exceed, in most cases, over $33,000 for undergraduate education. Now, we're talking medical school where you can earn huge amounts of money to pay it off. That's a little different story. I'm simply talking undergraduate education now. 33 dollars should be the upper limit. Anything beyond that, you won't be able to deduct the interest on that generally. So that's the general rule. Secondly, you want your overall debt to be less than, I would say, 18% of your gross income. If it starts getting more than that, it becomes very difficult to live on. And when you think about it, kids comes out of school, they might start off making forty thousand or fifty thousand dollars a year, but they gotta pay taxes on that money, they gotta pay rent, they gotta buy food, they gotta pay for clothing. Usually they usually need new clothing, new suits because they're working at a job. They got commuting, they got a car, they got all these expenses. If you gotta shell out twenty percent or more on debt, or particularly if a large part of that is student loan debt, and I see people shelling out six hundred, eight hundred dollars a month For student loan debt, there's no way they can afford that. And one very important point that I think everybody needs to understand, student loan debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. You can't get rid of it. Once you got it, you got it forever.
2: You know, those are phenomenal points. I wish we had more time because your book is just chock full of ideas we haven't even discussed. But let's maybe, with the time we have left, just one more question, because I think this is an area that people really, many times, don't have guidance and probably likely make mistakes, and it's an irrevocable decision. You mentioned that many people who are given an option to take less money at retirement, for example, in their pensions so that their spouses get paid for life, shouldn't take the option. Why and how do you cover the spouse in case of that premature death and talking about pension election options?
0: Yeah. Yeah. This actually happened to my father. and This is one of the reasons why I put it in my book, Chief Financial Freedom, Big Time. It's called pension maximization, and it's a really cool concept, and it's yet most people never think about it. And I think it's so important to me with your financial planner, I'd say about five to ten years before you contemplate retirement. It's something that everybody needs to do. Here's the problem. Many companies offer a deal when you retire, and the deal is you can get your full pension or... You take a substantial discount on the pension, I've seen as much as thirty to forty percent. But the pension goes on for the life of your spouse if you pre- die. Now that sounds pretty good. You get your pension, maybe forty percent less, but you know, you get it for your life, and then if you die, your spouse gets it for their life. Sounds pretty good. Here's the problem. My dad took that exact same situation when he worked for New York City. Unfortunately, my mother predeceased him. Because he made that election, in that case, it was irrevocable. He was stuck with a pension that was 60% of what he could have been taking for the rest of his life. It was a very serious situation. So the question is, how would you like to be able to get your full pension for you, and your spouse gets the full pension, and you don't have to take a discount? And here's your answer. It's called pension maximization. Pension maximization is very simple. You take your full pension, but you take out a life insurance policy. In that case, it'll be a permanent insurance. It wouldn't be term. You take out a life insurance policy to generate enough of a face value so that the interest earned on that policy will pay what the spouse would have gotten under the pension. So you're actually making cash payments on that life insurance policy every year. You're getting your full pension. If your spouse predeceases you, no problem. You can either keep paying the insurance or you can just cancel the policy and get all that cash in the policy. If you predecease the spouse, the spouse doesn't get the pension, but they get that full amount of life insurance, which is tax-free, by the way. And if it's enough, it should generate more than enough income to pay for the pension. Everybody wins except the employer. Now, the catch on this is you don't want to do this. and This is something that most people make a mistake on, like six months or before you retire or a month before you retire. Because many times, you get to be too old to the point where the premiums may exceed the discount in the pension, in what you would have gotten. So you want to really start doing this about five or ten years before you're going to retire. That's the important point. Second point, some employers will let you change the election. Not many, but there are some. The federal government is an example with that, of people that will do that. So you want to investigate with your employer whether this election is irrevocable or not. If it's irrevocable, you definitely want to look into pension maximization. You want your financial planner to figure out how much you need in face value to cover your spouse to equal the pension they would have gotten on the discount. It's a much smarter approach, and you won't have the problem that my father had, unfortunately.
1: I'll just share one other story with you, Sandy. One of the problems with these pensions, if you're the beneficiary of that pension, you're the worker that is eligible for that pension, if you die before the election, most of the pension programs I've seen, if you're vested, will only pay the 50% survivorship option, which usually ends up being, it's usually around 45% of what the total pension is if it was a life only, Another thing you want to consider, even if you're going to take the survivorship pension, if that's an important consideration in your total overall retirement income, you could be way short of your plans if you happen to die before you've had an opportunity to lock that in.
0: Absolutely. And that's another reason why you want to really look at this pension maximization, particularly if you have a company where it's an irrevocable deal and you can't change it. So that's really, really important to take a look at.
2: What a great place to end on a personal story of what inspired you to include that in your book and then interview successful people all over the country with your book, Achieve Financial Freedom Big Time, and also Lower Your Taxes Big Time. Obviously, our listeners can get that at all the regular outlets in Amazon. Go to your advisor's webpage. There'll be a spot on their webpage that you can also purchase that book through Amazon through a link. So feel free to also reach out to Sandy. And Sandy, you want to repeat a couple of websites?
0: You can go to Amazon.com. I try to be very independent. That's one thing I've done when I've written this book. You can go to your financial planner's website. We have a website, TaxBot.com, okay. which you'll hear more about, which is a great website for keeping track of your expenses, doing budgets, keeping track of auto mileage with an integrated mileage tracker. And, of course, I do daily blogs every day on www.facebook.com forward slash So use that, and you'll make your life and your taxes a lot less taxing.
2: Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing your time today. And as things evolve, because we know the IRS is always busy sending us new rules and regulations, it'd be important for us to visit with you again with
1: many of these valuable tips. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us this week. And tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the real wealth process. And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your real wealth advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information would be helpful to a friend or family member, just click the forward to a friend button. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's podcast from Prism Insurance Agency. We've
0: got additional information and links in our show notes, which you can click on to learn more. If you have any questions about any of the topics covered or would like to learn more, you can go to our website, www.myprisminsurance.com. You can reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Call us at 951-243-2800 or email me directly at prob at myprisminsurance.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful week.